0: This is Dr. Lynn McPherson and welcome to Palliative Care Chat. The podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD and Graduate Certificate program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders and Futurists in Palliative Care. A series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in palliative care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hi, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and thanks for joining us. We're very excited to be continuing our podcast series and recordings for the PhD program titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. As I said, my name is Lynn McPherson. I'm the program director of the PhD, MS, and the graduate certificate program. I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and colleague, Connie Dolan who will be teaching in the first course and, ironically, the last course in the program. Connie, why don't you take it away and introduce our guest today?
1: Great. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are really honored um, to have Dr. Gentino with us. Joan has been in the field for many years, um, and hopefully, as PhD students and researchers, you will be coming across Joan's numerous um, articles that she has written over the years because she's a health services researcher, but she's been really thinking on the ground from being a clinician herself, thinking about hospice. She started off in Rhode Island and worked with the hospice and palliative care people there of and thought about the first uh, toolkit, um, and she'll explain more of that when she was at Brown. Um, and then she moved across country and has been in the Northwest and continuing her work she's worked for CMS. She was on the 2014 dying in America report. She's done numerous types of things and so we're really I'm grateful to have Joan speak to us because I think as PhD students, you will need to understand the research, be able to um, review it, interpret it, and think about what it means for the field. So thank you, Joan. Um, do you wanna talk a little bit more about how you got here and um, <laughs> what kind of kept you in it?
2: You know, um, so, so, you know, I, I think life is uh, somewhat serendipity. And um, when I started my residency a very long time ago, my first rotation was in the ICU. And then when I was about to leave that rotation, um, the person who was going to take over for me quit the residency program. So they said, well, you're on a vacation block. Why don't you just get both of your ICU mumps out of the way? So I spent the first nearly 10 weeks of my residency program in the ICU. Now there there was good news and bad news with that. Uh, The bad news was I was in ICU on call every other night. The good news was Dr. Dan Brock, who was one of the key writers of the President's Commission on Biomedical Ethics was a philosopher who was being paid by the National Academy of Science to round with interns in the ICU. Mm -hmm. So I spent the first 10 weeks of my residency rounding every Monday through Friday with Dan Brock and having discussions about ethical issues, mm. that was transformative for me, and got me thinking about a lot of these key issues regarding end of life care. And then, I think two other things really happened. One thing that happened was um, we managed to empty out the ICU except for one patient who was a end stage dementia patient in septic shock, and I spent the night at her bedside just dialing up the pressers to a limit where we were going to stop while she died. And I thought, this is just, it's terrible. This is not what end of life care should be in the United States with a total stranger sitting at her bedside dialing up pressors with none of her family around her. And I just thought we could do a better job. And then other patients I took um, when I became, for two years, I was a service attending uh, taking care of indigent patients. That really shaped my desire to improve how we care for seriously ill and dying persons. And I was very fortunate to do a geriatric fellowship and then to do a postdoc um, in health services research with Vince Moore at Brown University. And from there, I managed to land a job at a little study called the support study, the study to understand mm-hmm. prognosis and preferences for, and for outcomes and risk of treatment and was just an unbelievable opportunity of a life. Um, I walked in there as an assistant professor and just learned so much by working with both Bill Canals and Joanne Lynn. And so a lot of the work and the support study informed the next steps of research, which I did uh, for the last, oh my God, 25 years. How did that happen?
1: <laughs> so when you think about um you know, where palliative care was at that point, because I think we've had discussions with people and they were talking about, you know, support was really important um, for what it may have proved or not proved, but it certainly guided so much in terms of the research and then Robert Wood Johnson Foundation in terms of funding palliative care. And, you know, what are some of your other thoughts in terms of um, the importance of support or, you you know, if we were to repeat that now, would we find the same results or would we do it the same way? Or, you know, what do you think if somebody said, well, you know, that was then, I wanna repeat it now because we don't know our environment anymore.
2: Uh, There's a lot to unpack in that question. Um, I think one thing I I really, you know, want people to know is um, the support study was a really negative randomized control trial. It's a clustered randomized control trial with nearly 10,000 patients. Um, And it, for the outcome measures that we chose, it was negative as you could be. There was not one single P value. Um, To the credit of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, they said, we can't live like this. We need to invest more money to disseminate the findings of the support study and then to really help fund and create um, centers for palliative care and and fund future projects. And I think a lot of that credit goes to the staff of Robert Wood Johnson Foundation who invested probably even more money into growing the infrastructure in palliative medicine. So a lot of us um, were able to become professors, based on our early involvement, either with the support study or with the funding that came after the support study. Um, I think the one thing I've always puzzled about is, is, you know, how much can you accomplish in a lifetime? Because um, I, I kind of, at a reflective stage now, Wonder, well, why couldn't I do more? Why didn't I make a bigger change? Why couldn't we have really fundamental change on how we care for seriously ill and dying persons? And, and it gets me trying to reflect about, you know, are we doing the right thing? Are we employing the right strategies? Um, is there something that we need to rethink about how we're financing healthcare? I think one of the things that I took out of support. And, you know, and my role in support as a very junior, junior person was um, I, I worked with the, the Data Safety Monitoring Board and they asked me to read every 10th narrative that the nurses wrote who were doing the intervention just to make sure that things were going well, that there wasn't any clinical concerns. And what I just was really impressed was how you know, it was the elephant in the room that no one was paying attention to and how people got trapped into this mindset of continuing to do ICU care until really it was futility. And I think, you know, I was moved by many of the quotations that were in these narratives written by the support nurses that talked about how difficult this decision-making was. And so that got me really interested in really understanding how we make decisions. And then the second thing, which seemed to be a driving thing that came out of the narrative is what you pay for is what you get. Um, And so I became very interested in the intersection of how we measure the quality of care from the perspective of that dying person and those who love and care for him and then how we finance it. And so I've tried for the last 20, 25 years to really try to make contributions and thinking about how we do that by working with a lot of different teams and and that's one thing you know for those of you who are students out there um, wanting to pursue this research teams are the best. Um, I've been very fortunate throughout my entire life to be part of multidisciplinary research teams which creates a richer product that just makes the science better and you know I think the other thing I wanna point out as I reflect, um, there was a cadre of people who I grew up with, who we all became assistant professors at the same time. And the one nice thing is we shared, that we shared experiences, we shared findings, we helped each other, um, because really what was so important to us was was trying to be transformative and trying to make things better um, for our patients.
1: So when you think back, I mean, are there certain things after support that like you think were seminal that gave you hope that we were making progress?
2: Yeah, I, I guess maybe, you know, maybe I just, I have very high expectations. So, <laughs> you know, cause I, I actually think there were things that were huge accomplishments. So, you know, the, the, the really investment in having faculty in palliative medicine at all medical schools was a huge accomplishment. The fact that we have um, you know, departments or you know, sections of palliative medicine is really huge. When I, when I started my postdoc, one of my research uh, projects was looking at the use of advanced directives. And one of the very famous oncologists said, well, that's a nice hobby. Now tell me what you're gonna do with your life. And I don't think that would happen right now. Um, People will look and say there's a body of evidence about end-of-life care, about care of the seriously ill, and that this is as important for someone to become a professor of medicine in this as uh, someone studying um, viral infections or trying to create a new vaccine. Um, So that, I think, in itself is a huge accomplishment. you know, I guess naively, I kind of hoped that people wouldn't die in pain 30 years later, that, you know, the the narrative from an article I just published about two months ago, where the family member recalls their family writhing in pain on the floor because they weren't getting pain adequately treated would no longer happen. Um, yet it still does. So I, I think that's a little bit frustrating to me. And I wish that you know, I wouldn't have to read narratives like that. Um, you know, and I wish that, you know, even more, I wish that that family member would not have that as a sentinel member, remembering of what happened to their loved one. So, you know, sort of in my sort of introspective phase here, um, I wish we could have made a bigger difference, but I also wanna acknowledge that some really huge progress has been made. Um, you know, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of having hospital-based palliative medicine teams about the fact that we're finally talking about, uh, you know, doing policy changes to deal with the Medicare hospice benefit and uh, trying to get services more upstream um, for these people, which I think is really important. So, you know, I, I think we're making progress, but am I satisfied? No, but maybe I would never, never be satisfied unless we really achieve our goal. Um, But as as I have talked with some of my junior folks, well, the torch is now yours, you know, you really really need to take this up because it's gonna be, you know, a constant pushing to make sure we do better for this very important and unique population.
1: So two questions, I mean, you know, there's been um, a little bit of talk recently that, you know, advanced care planning is dead. Curious what you think about that comment Um, and Mm -hmm. that palliative care should be focusing elsewhere. And then my second question is, um, you know, with the policy changes, we've been sort of talking about it for 40 years. Um, You know, do you think that it will happen? And what do you think that the effect would really have
2: yeah, so, so obviously thinking about advanced directive is something I, I, I spent a lot of my early career thinking about. And um, you know the one thing I, I've tried to do is to write some summited articles that lay out my thoughts. And um, there's a new journal sounding board about complex interventions to improve end-of-life care. So, so my take is advanced care planning is an important aspect, but it's not sufficient. And if you take a look at the data from Oregon, and I I wrote this paper, well, Susan Toll was the first author, but it was a a joint paper. What we tried to point out was, you know, what they did in Oregon was just not hand out pink sheet. They educated, they changed laws, they looked where barriers were and tried to solve those barriers. Hospices became, um, had the capacity now to enroll people you know, from the hospital to go home to die. So there's a series of really complex things that has to come together that will improve end-of-life care. And, you know, one of those key things, unfortunately, is financial incentives. Mm-hmm. And financial incentives, um, you know, can be important to making change, but also can be dangerous to making change because you you don't want, you um, care to become equilibrated or equal to, you know, not providing access to care. And, you know, this is a very complex time where individuals may vary on what their goals are. And we want to try to support people to be able to, if they choose, reflect on what's important to them and give them the opportunities to have the best quality of life as they define it during this time period. So, you know, we don't wanna oversell that um, this is all about saving money. Really what should be out front and center is this is about meeting someone in a very sentinel period of time for that person and their family and really trying to improve their quality of life. And it's, it's not about dying per se, it's really about living and trying to make sure that they are having the best possible quality of life that you can provide
1: them. So um, when you think about that, um, I mean, so it's interesting because I think so many people use this advanced care planning as their metric um, and, it, um, or we have palliative care teams that that's how they start, but they never then grow out To some of the other dimensions. And I think, you know, when you're speaking to that, I I think that the danger also is, you know, we have a lot of work to do in palliative care. We have not, you know, we have also been um, a lot of health disparities and and inequities, right? And so when you think about, you know, the whole advanced care planning process. For some cultures, it might not even be culturally appropriate, right? So there's this challenge of what we're selling and then trying to make sure access, I guess. Um, But I guess the other part of thinking, so, you know, how do we help kind of shape the future? Because when you were talking about you get what you pay for, we're trying not to monetize this. And yet we have this hospice benefit, but we don't have a palliative care benefit. You know, should we or does that just make it muckier? (laughs) So, so so, let me sort of
2: address some of the financial incentives. Um, so, so what I've been really fortunate this year in that I've been invited with um, a new journal, uh, JAMA Health Forum to write a series of essays on um, end of life care. And in that first essay um, that I call, Hell No, I Won't Go, um, it's about financing. And it, and I talk very clearly about my dad's death, um, and you know I think what we have to realize is there is a significant proportion of people who really want aggressive treatment until a point of futility, and you know if I had to estimate that population based on work that I've done on contracts on the, for example the Medicare Choice model. In the Medicare choice model, it's about one in five people who either die on the Medicare choice model benefit, which is a concurrent care benefit, or they die after a three-day hospice stay. And I don't think that represents a failure of the hospices to adequately educate them about the benefits of hospice. I think this is their preferences, okay? And the same thing with my father, his preferences were very clear. Um, my job as his durable power of attorney was to support and allow him to live a life that respected his goals of care. Okay, and I think one of the things that we underestimated is there's a sizable population out there, you know, be it 20, maybe 25 percent, whose preference patterns are only for stopping treatment when it's really futile, or the treatment toxicity is too much. Yet, these people still have important unmet needs. So they're not going to make a choice of the Medicare hospice benefit, but how can we provide them with services? And I do think you know there's a lot that palliative medicine can do or palliative care can do to provide services to these people. So we need to have an adequate funding mechanism. Now, my little bit of frustration with how Congress has structured these models of care is they said, every model must be cost neutral or save money. And, um, you know, think about it. (laughs) You're you're asking for a high cost, high needs population to be cost neutral. Um, So, you know, I think really financing From looking at it from the perspective of a bigger population, is really what we really need to do. And we have to realize that, you know, when people get really sick, it's an expensive part of our life and it's an expensive time of healthcare. And to always make the assumption that you're going to save a lot of money, I think, is a wrong assumption. And we should really focus more on quality of life. And also, I think we also need to think about what are all the downstream implications on what happens to family members when they deal with someone in an ICU and they have a post-traumatic stress disorder or have prolonged grief. So, you know, I think the right thing to do here is to try to figure out how can we provide services that go upstream um, that is not breaking the bank here, but, allows to get some support and services there and yet preserve the very important role that the Medicare hospice benefit plays in end of- life care. And I think we need to really figure out that financing puzzle. Now the, the problem with all this is um, is how do we make sure that we're all good citizens? Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that we have transparency. Um, you know not you know not everybody, goes into healthcare for the same reasons that many of my colleagues go into palliative care. And so, you know, one of the things that I think we have to be very careful about is the incentives that money can play in really wreaking havoc on end of life care. Um, You know, and, and, you know, there's probably a small percentage of hospices out there who are not living up to the ideals Of those people who created hospice. And, you know, the one study that I did, I think that puts some kind of figure around this is um, we looked at hospices who didn't visit anybody in the last two days of life. And, you know, it turns out it was about 8% of the hospices who had 30 or more deaths in a year did not manage to make one visit, even by accident in a dying patient at home. So, you know, I think you've got to work really hard um, to avoid getting at least one. So, you know, there is some, you know, providers out there who are not living up to the ideals that I would want them to live up to, you know, and and, and really focus not only on trying to make sure your profit margins high, but focusing on caring for patients. So, You know, I think that's, I guess one of my biggest frustrations is we we've got to have actionable measures that allows us to weed out these providers who are not doing a good job, who motives are too much on profit rather than on caring for persons.
1: Well, so, uh, I mean, there's two things thinking of, like, do you see palliative care programs trying to do that same thing, or do you think it'll be solved if we have more of a concurrent model that becomes the norm for adults? Yeah, I I think concurrent care
2: is a very important option because I think there's a sizable portion of the population who is not going to buy into the philosophy of the Medicare hospice benefit, Mm -hmm. but... If concurrent care, primary measure of success is saving money, then we're going to be, uh, there's going to be a huge problem because, you know, people will not have access to needed services. So, you know, I I really, you know, I think we already saw in UK uh, a fairly substantial uh, concern with the Liverpool pathway. And we've saw some little spikes here for example, in uh, you know a, 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 a healthcare system who said that everybody had to have a pulse form at 65 or something really ridiculous like that. And then all of a sudden the Oregon uh, pulse registry sees the spike in people wanting CPR. And then the problem becomes, well, no one updates those forms. And then what do you do when they have metastatic cancer when no one's updated those forms? So, you know, I think, we we need to, you know, we need to, you know, we need to provide the right financial incentives, but also have the right oversight with accountability measures that are publicly reported to ensure high quality care. So we have to go upstream, we have to finance it, but we have to do it in such a way that we're looking for this small number of providers who are not behaving well. And right now. excuse me, right now some of the community-based palliative care, it's, we don't know. Um, You know, there's a a huge for-profit program that goes to MA providers and says, give us $800 a month and we'll take on these patients and we'll save you money. Well, it should not only about taking on these patients and saving money, that next part of that sentence should be, we will take on these patients, we will provide them with high quality of life, high quality of care, and we'll do it in a cost neutral fashion. And, you know, I think it's really important as we go upstream that we have these measures. And I think the best measures is either speaking to that seriously ill person or speaking to their family, (coughs) excuse me, Um, to really understand um, the, quality of care and to make sure that people are not being pushed into uh, a choice that they don't want.
1: Um, And so in terms of thinking about, you know, do you think (laughs) that, I mean, we've, we've been hearing that people wanted to look at the Medicare benefit for a long time. I know that we were in, well, we still are in this whole political part, because when you think about what happened with the death panels, it took us 10 years to get ACP not equal death panels and pass. Um, and I know hospices <coughs> are concerned that if that got opened up, given the current bipartisan relationship that it could disappear. You know, what are your thoughts about that moving forward? Because I think, you know, our students would certainly be involved in thinking about some of that policy and um, what, what route do we go? Yeah,
2: I, I think the, the issue is, is the same thing that happened in the UK with the Liverpool pathway It's very easy for someone to sensationalize this and to rev up people to be fearful. And so I think, you know, especially in our field, we need to be, make sure that, that we're doing the best possible job. So I think it's really important that we have actionable transparency measures. My biggest fear is as we go upstream someone, you know, some large entity is gonna be fo- so focused on making a profit that they're gonna do something really stupid and it'll blow up and then it'll set us backwards. And And that, <clears throat> that's one of the reasons why I have spent a lot of my time thinking about how we can measure the quality of care, how we can publicly report it. Um, you know, and, I I think, you know, I guess what's frustrating to me is um, how can you not have compassion? You know, how, you know, how, you know, some of, some people really look at it from a perspective that this is just money. And I can't look at that perspective. This is not just money. This is, this is, you know, someone who could be your mother, your brother, your sister. And, you know, we need to really, you know, not hate them because they have a different skin color, or not hate them because they have a horrendous disease that you didn't inherit. Um, we need to be compassionate to them and provide, you know, the help for them at, faced with these challenges. And you know, I, I, I get really frustrated when I've been listening to these early books on COVID that people you know, there were some people just that weren't compassionate. You know, it was not about what was doing right. It was about political gains. And the minute we go down this route where it's just all about political gains and power, um, we're going to lose, we're going to lose our moral center.
1: When you think about, um, you know, the, some of the metrics. Um, I know I've been involved with the National Quality Forum and some of their work groups. And, and I know you have the CMMRI. Like, So how do we kind of um, bring together um, some of these ways of reporting quality that it's, I mean, we in healthcare sometimes have a sense of how to find it, but I don't think patients and families know at all how to kind of um, look up Um, different hospices. And I don't think palliative care teams you can even look up. I mean, so you can't even get a sense of what the quality is and you find out, you know, bit by bit. I mean, my story was, is that um, my mother-in-law lived in Florida. I was trying to get her palliative care because she wasn't hospice appropriate. And somebody said, oh, because of, you know, who you are, we'll start a trial program. Well, that's not what I want to hear, right? Um, And it was a total fiasco. So how do we help families be able to, besides you know, the state organizations, hospice locators, which are never really give you what you want. How do we help that and really think about that reporting?
2: So, so we need to invest in um, making sure that the information that's on hospice compare mm-hmm. is actionable to consumers and mm-hmm. that consumers can, can use that information to make choices. Um, you know, I think in the past, um, I've worked on a number of series of questions that um, a consumer can ask of a hospice program to know if it's a high quality hospice program. Um, I think, you know, based on my um, involvement, CAPS hospice, that that survey tool is discriminating among high quality hospice programs and poor quality hospice programs. And I, I think part of the, maybe part of the frustration is that you know, probably the vast majority of hospice programs are really good. The issue is there's this small percentage. It's like everything we, when we talked about hospice and palliative medicine, it's this weird distribution. <laughs> you know, there's, there's this distribution where it's like a lot of it is slammed over to this side of the curve. And then there's this small portion out here and there's a small portion of hospice programs who I think probably should be closed down. Um, that their their quality of care is they're not staffing it right. They're not doing after hour visits. Um, And, you know, we should, you know, I think there's a really a role for making uh, hospice compare transparent and actionable to consumers, but also for certain survey to step up and really start targeting these programs. And and Congress giving them the authority to close some of them down, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I have a firm belief that stop signs are an important part of our life. And, and now we just can't have a society where there's no stop signs. And so government needs to play a very important role in helping ensure that there is quality care. Now, you know, the issue on that role is we don't want to be over-regulated, but we want to hit that right balance to make sure that these providers who are just not conforming to the rules and regulations, you know, are um, told either improve or stop or lose your license, lose your ability to admit Medicare patients. Can
0: I ask something? Dr. Teno? do you think that the Hospice Compare is looking at the right data. For example, it makes me insane when we're trying to use an antipsychotic drug to treat nausea, garden variety nausea in a hospice patients, Iprexa or Halmo, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And the answer we get is no, we can't do that because that will affect our stars rating. I just wanna poke up both my eyeballs. What do you think about that? So, so,
2: so, so first of all, I think that's most likely um, nursing homes that are, are, are saying that, mm-hmm. you know, like anything else, any, any quality measure, you've gotta get the denominator right, okay? Mm-hmm. It's gotta be the, the right population. And then the really hard part you have to think about is how some providers are gonna game the system, you know? So you need to fi- put enough finances in to make sure you have the right denominator and make sure you have enough data edits occurring, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing I'll, I'll, I'll say is it's a black box out there on how we use some antipsychotics mm-hmm. in hospice patients. So, um, you know, I, I I have the privilege of working with a really wonderful geropsychiatrist who's opening that black box and and asking questions about, um, you know, people who are admitted to hospice with dementia, who end up with a live discharge. Um, what are we doing with them in terms of prescribing antipsychotics? Because, you know, antipsychotics, like anything, I think everything has to have a risk benefit ratio. Okay. Mm-hmm. If someone is actively dying. I'm not worried about uh, the, the benefits really outweigh the risk, but I think you got to be very careful with some of these diseases where, you know, they can really truly have higher risks because they're not really actively dying. And that's, I guess one of the frustrations of dealing with some of these non-cancer and also with dementia is um, it's a very lingering, slow disease trajectory. Mm -hmm. And um, it it can be hard there. Hold on for a second. Um, I just, oh, (laughs) sorry. it just was a text message. I just wanted. It was from my dog, uh, one of my dogs at daycare, and I just wanted to make sure there was not a problem. So I apologize for an interruption. It was just a picture of my dog playing in a mud puddle. <laughs>
1: Such a palliative a, care vision, right? <laughs> yeah, I've
2: I've 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 a sixteen a, a month old puppy who I send to uh, daycare. Uh, twice a week to blow off steam so the older dogs can have a respite from
0: him. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I agree with the antipsychotics with delirium, particularly in dementia. I think that's iffy, and I think those are on the way out. Um, but when, I mean, we've got good data showing like the for garden variety nausea in palliative care can be quite beneficial, but we get the same pushback on that too. And that's disturbing. So here's, here's one of my frustrations that um,
2: since since you're mentioning one of your frustrations, I hope you don't mind if I mention one of my frustrations. One of my frustrations is um, that we're not adequately funding freestanding inpatient hospice units, okay? Mm-hmm. And I, had, I I really had the privilege uh, for 18 years um, providing clinical coverage for freestanding hospice inpatient units. And for people with difficult symptom control, they were a godsend, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I can remember prior to us having enough beds in a freestanding hospice inpatient unit, um, going to someone's home and watching them seize in their home, oh. and it was a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And you know, compare that to um, getting someone into an inpatient unit where I can use the right medications to control seizures. Um, but the problem is that there's not the financing to make it a viable business model um, unless. You have a wonderful philanthropy. So that's why, you know, if you happen to live in the East Coast or in a rich community, you have an inpatient unit. But if you live in an area which doesn't have the philanthropy to, to support it, you don't have an inpatient unit. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I keep, I've, I've said multiple times that we need to look at how we're financing these inpatient units because I think there's an access problem to it.
1: Absolutely yeah so when you think about for our students who are going to either step into research or step into leading you know what are some of the things that you think they should be thinking about or considering as they move into this career that they are obviously invested in by getting a phd
2: well first of all um one of one of my things is i'm very excited that um Uh, 25 years ago you could put all of us in a hotel ballroom (laughs) and if there's a bomb that went off you would wipe out all the research community Um, what's really wonderful now is that um there there is many people who are interested in this who are doing innovative work and you know who are passionate about it so you know if i could say one thing um is listen to yourself Listen to what you're passionate and follow that and be persistent, okay? I'm someone who applied for every faculty development grant and never got funded. Yet um, I managed to somehow keep myself funded with R01, NIH, CMS, RWJ, various foundation funding for nearly 25 years and, you know, I think persistence is really important and being really committed um, and passionate about what you do is really important. I think the one thing that I found really helpful was all throughout my career up until about two years ago, i always was doing both clinical care at the bedside and doing the research and the experiences I had at the bedside so greatly informed the research that I did. So having both those roles has been invaluable, at least to me, to give me really what are the important questions. So, you know what? A life where you can focus on what you're passionate about and hopefully trying to make things better is really an ultimate gift, okay? So the the fact that I've been able to somehow be able to, A, do this research, afford a house, pay for my dogs, and still travel. Some has been really the ultimate gift in my life, and and I think what you know what I'm doing right now is is writing a series of essays um, about financing and and palliative care and trying to make sense of where we should go.
1: So obviously, our students should be reading. <laughs> Your essays to come to think about some of that. Um, because I think that, you Actually, know, they should
2: be improving and pointing out what I did wrong, and making it better. Because right, I'm well, sure, I'm sure no there's something I got wrong. <laughs> and, you know, that, you know, I think that's what's so important is, um, is that we, we never lose the sense of questioning things. Okay, I, I I'll, I'll give a, a little shout out to the New York Times I always wondered why the the goal was a 10,000 steps a day.
1: Oh it yeah, they just out,
2: yeah. <laughs> the whole reason for the 10,000 steps was the person who made the pedometer in Japan called it a 10,000 step pedometer. It wasn't based on research. It was only based on a marketing ploy.
1: So I saw turns that.
2: Out, turns out that, you know, some research is like, uh, you know, 5,000 to 6,000 steps is enough, you know, and I think, you know, all throughout my career, there's been so many things that we've done in medicine because that's why they did it, okay? I, during medical school, worked as a nurse's aide in the CCU. We put all those patients to bed rest. No one would even think of that now. So I think, you know, question. Don't, don't just accept that what you've been told is right, but really think about questioning Things and being open to exploring alternative hypotheses and be open to asking these really difficult questions. It's hard to ask questions when everybody says, but, well, it's 10,000 steps. Everybody says it's 10,000 steps. You know, I think you, you need to really, you know, if you do research, you have to be open to um, accepting or rejecting the null hypothesis. <laughs>
0: So you mean the cereal companies may be wrong when they say breakfast is the most important meal of the day oh god let me get me let me get in trouble with another
2: constituency
1: <laughs> well but i think also i mean you make a point and that you know i i think in the process of lynn and i doing all these interviews we sort of had a sense of what people did and kind of balancing and just trying to get things established, right? And now we're in such a place of like, okay, what do we kind of take as this is, this is kind of pretty standard and what do we continue to question? And we have this whole new generation that as you know has very much different technology, different views and I think they do need to question. But I think the other part that drives me personally crazy is, and you kind of hinted at it, we are in a very challenging time to change because if you look at a lot of things, particularly in academic medical centers, when you try to change something, they're like, well, this is the way we've always done it. And it's like, okay, but that's not working, right? So, you know, how do we change this? And then, so it's not only the mindset of everybody, but like saying this newer generation that is going to question. And I think the other part is, um, as you named it, I think. I think probably you know over the past 40 years, those of us who are in hospice and palliative care have sort of assumed that there is, and you've mentioned this, um, this compassionate doing it because it's the right moral thing. That that all of the palliative people involved in palliative care come from that. And I I would say that I have learned over the past year in COVID doing a lot of things that. We are not all earthy, crunchy. That, and I think for me personally, for some people, they're like, "Oh my goodness, I didn't realize that." And I'm like, what were you thinking? I mean, and that also is a is a almost a contradiction to this: palliative care is doing the right thing and being compassionate. To know that we have a subset um, that may not have the beliefs of equality or, um, you know, not making money.
2: There, there's something about the dichotomy. Of someone who is a hospice uh, CEO affording a private jet (laughs) and staffing not being right, Um, but you know, uh, I don't know. You know, it it it's it's you know you have to decide where you where you're going to draw your own line, but I I find something really abhorrent on someone making thirty to. $35 million by starting a uh, for-profit company for hospice and selling stock, that just doesn't seem to me the right set of values that I personally want to live
0: by. Well, thank you so much. This has been amazing. You're you're a lovely person. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us.
2: And and by the way, your dog is better than my dog. (laughs) (laughs) I have, I have, one of them who was squeaking here who I had to take his squeaker from <laughs> to prevent him from squeaking um, but your dog all for out there it's been in the background totally asleep uh, where can I get one of those well, We
0: had company we had my daughter's two dogs for a week so she's exhausted
1: well also she's been bored we've done so many interviews <laughs> she kind of knows like okay let I go again so but anyway thank you so much um, we really appreciate it and I know our students will really um, appreciate just some of the thoughts that you've given for them to think about their research and kind of working and where we are in kind of this crossroads of um, care of next steps Lynn any Great. Other- well,
2: thank you for your time we really uh, really appreciate it thank you Great. good luck with the doggies and your travel thanks
0: so much <laughs> I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD and graduate certificate program in palliative care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.